Morning, Incarnation. Good morning. In the second century, somewhere between 100 and 150 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the epistle of Diognetus was written by a disciple of Jesus to a man who was inquiring about Christianity. And in it, we are given uh, this picture of what Christianity looked like at the time, this growing persecuted movement in the Roman Empire. And, uh, and this description has actually become kind of famous. I, I reckon you'll remember or, or recognize one or two of the phrases that are used. But it says this. I want to quote it at length. He says, They dwell in their own countries, but are simply as, but simply as sojourners. Every foreign land to them is as their native country, and every native land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring, which means that the early Christians rejected the very um, culturally common practice of infanticide. He continues, they have a common table, but not a common bed, referring to their commitment to sexual purity. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. Mm -hmm. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Mm -hmm. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. <coughs> they love all men and are persecuted by all. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. And I ask you guys, who but the followers of a crucified king could be described in this kind of way. Mm -hmm. It says they are reviled and they bless. They are insulted and they repay the insult with honor. They do good and yet are punished as evildoers. And one punished, they rejoice as if quickened to life. Mm -hmm. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Mm -hmm. And the author concludes his point to sum it all up in a word, what the soul is in the body, Christians are in the world. The soul is dispersed through all the members of the body, and Christians are scattered throughout all the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, yet is not of the body. And Christians dwell in the world, yet are not of the world. Amen. And I ask again, who but the followers of a crucified king could be described in that sort of way? Even today, the followers of Christ are still called to live in this way. Amen? Amen. To confuse the world with this otherworldly sense of love and truth and holiness. I have a Christian friend named Fallon who a few years back learned that somebody she knew from childhood was in this crisis pregnancy situation. And she talked to this old friend, and she prayed for her, and she pleaded with her gently to keep the baby, to maybe give it up for adoption. Um, but this young woman was in despair, and she said she couldn't picture having a baby and having it be raised by a stranger, and so she made the abortion appointment. And then um, my friend Fallon and her young husband shocked this girl 
by making an offer that she hadn't bargained on. And they said, well, it wouldn't have to be that way. It wouldn't have to be raised by a stranger. Maybe, maybe you could have the baby and we could raise it as our own. And then maybe if in a little while and if in a couple of years you change your mind and you want the baby back, we could give the baby back to you. And that offer was so radical, you know, from, from somebody who barely had any skin in the game. I mean, they had barely interacted for several years that it changed this young girl's heart. She repented. She canceled the abortion appointment and decided to keep the baby herself. And I wonder if this child, who's probably about 10 years old now, has any idea how they owe their life to the radical love of a Christian who doesn't even really know them. In the epistle of Diognetus and the life of my friend Fallon, we see this radical vision for the church and what it means to be a Christian. And it's this kind of vision that's on display here in our passage today from 1 Timothy 5. Will you turn there with me? Grab a pew Bible and turn to page 992. So here in this passage we find the New Testament church treating strangers as family and caring for vulnerable widows as if they're their own mothers. And even more radically, viewing these elderly women as more than just victims to be cared for, but as fellow ministers with something to offer the world. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. So here again we encounter this idea of the church as a family, the household of God, as Paul had put it, in chapter 3, verse 15. And so, even when people fall into sin and error and Paul and Timothy has to discipline them, Paul calls Timothy to exercise this church discipline in a way that's in step with this image of a loving family. Older Christians are to be held in honor as fathers and mothers. John Stott says that we owe our elders the respect which is due to age and the affection which is due to parents. I wonder if we treat older Christians in that way. Timothy is also told to treat younger men as brothers, so not in a condescending way. And younger women as sisters, not in a sexualized way, but in all purity. All this is in line with Jesus' own teachings from the Gospels. We just read in Matthew 12, where Jesus' mother and brothers come and visit him. And they're trying to get to talk to him. And Jesus wants to make a point. And he says, Who, who's my family? Who's my family? Right? And he points to his disciples. And he says, Whoever obeys my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And in saying this, Jesus radically redefines the way that we should think about our relationship with other disciples, other believers. So the earliest believers distinguished between biological family on the one hand and spiritual family on the other. And I think today in the church, we tend to place almost all our emphasis on the former to the neglect of the latter. But in the scriptures, both are actually important. It's not one or the other. It's not either or. It's both and. Notice how Paul calls the early church to take responsibility for the widows in their midst as if they were their own mothers whom they had responsibility to. 
You may remember that in the Ten Commandments, the fifth commandment is to honor thy father and thy mother. And I want you to kind of sort of put a pin in that word honor for a moment. This commandment has generally been understood, even by Jesus in Mark chapter 7, as a call not just to sort of respect our parents, but to financially provide for them when they can no longer provide for themselves. There was no retirement plan back then. There was no social security. There was no life insurance policy. The only social security that elderly Christians and Jews had at the time was their kids. That was their social security. That's why Paul could say here in verse 8, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You, know, you, can, you can deny the faith through your behavior. Not just through your doctrine. Not just, oh, I reject the Trinity. Paul is saying there's a kind of behavioral apostasy. And he says, neglecting your parents qualifies as that. There are some cultures around the world today, particularly in Asia and Africa, where this idea of a household is extended, right, to like grandparents and aunts and needy cousins, not just nuclear family. And I think this is actually more biblical. We must understand, brothers and sisters, even... Even in this increasingly secular culture, individualistic culture, that the fifth commandment is still in effect for Christians. There is a place for things like life insurance as a way of providing for loved ones. But setting aside money is no substitute for opening up our homes. Mm -hmm. God desires an open door, not just an open hand. There may be a place for things like old folks' homes, nursing homes, especially in the case of severe physical or mental impairment. But we should always start by asking ourselves, do we have the capacity to take our family back into our home? Mm -hmm. Now, we put a pin in this word, honor, regarding the fifth commandment. And notice that it's also used here in 1 Timothy 5. And just like in the fifth commandment, Paul's exhortation to honor widows is not just talking about social respect. It's talking about financial support. In fact, throughout this section, Paul seeks to answer a series of practical financial questions. Who is responsible for the financial care of widows in the church? What's the role of the biological family as distinguished from the spiritual family? And if support is to be provided by the church... With its limited resources, which widows qualify for such support? Now, we've talked about the radical love of the early church, but as we read on, we also see that they exercised wise discretion in their charity. Can you turn to your neighbor and say, wise discretion? Wise discretion. All right. Honor widows who are truly widows, Paul urges them in verse 3. This verse has been translated also as honor widows who are truly in need or honor, honor widows who are widows in the fullest sense. In other words, there are some there were some at the time who were technically widows, but they had biological family to help them out. Clearly, there were some relatives at the time who tried to work the system to use church support as a way of dodging their fifth commandment responsibilities. Which is why Paul says what he says in verse 8. 
And there were even some widows who used the church's charity as an occasion for self-indulgence and idleness. Verse 13 says they learned to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. And Paul is clear that this kind of church-sponsored irresponsibility does not glorify God. And it doesn't truly help people. It only causes what he says, what he calls reproach for the watching world. So he calls the church to show discretion in its charity, to have big hearts indeed, yes, but not bleeding hearts. As Jesus put it, to be wise as serpents. Serpents and innocent as doves. And in an effort to do so, verse 9 mentions that the church developed an official role, a sort of list of needy women that they've agreed to take responsibility for as their own mothers. So you see that alluded to in verse 9. And as we sort of bring the various pieces together from this chapter, it's a kind of a complicated passage, I know, but we see that this role of widows was. It seemed to be some sort of combination of a social program, like caring for those who are vulnerable, those in need, but also like a monastic order, releasing these women for kingdom impact in the world. Did you notice that? For example, consider the four criteria that Paul lays out for being rolled. These criteria are a combination of economic need and godly character. So first, they must be women who have nowhere else to turn. Right, verse 5 says, left all alone. Second, according to verse 9, they must be over the age of 60. We'll say something about that again in a minute. Third, they have to have been the wife of one husband, meaning that they've been faithful to their marriage vows. Right? Interestingly, this same qualification, this same Greek phrase is used in chapter 3 in regards to pastors and deacons, right? which strengthens the idea that there's some sort of almost criteria for ministry. That's going on here. And fourthly, since being enrolled as a widow involves real ministry, these women's, women must have a reputation for prayerfulness and godliness. Verse 5 says that such a widow has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. It sounds like very monastic, doesn't it? Verse 10 adds, having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, which may include orphans, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, is a very Jesus-shaped image, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good word. Now it's interesting to note that not long after New Testament times, as a sort of uh, like a precursor to early monasticism, the church developed an identifiable order of widows and virgins. So women in these orders made vows to singleness, to prayer, to service for the church, caring for orphans, nursing the sick, visiting saints in prison, preparing female converts for baptism, evangelizing pagans. And you may say, oh, well, yeah, you know, what does monasticism have to do with the Bible, though? But I hope we can see that this kind of movement was nothing more than a practical application, a practical working out of passages like 1 Timothy 5 and 1 Corinthians 7. Where were these widows living? What kind of, what kind of uh, you know, community structure did they have? This is what sort of began. It was the embryonic seed of monasticism. Far too often in human history, 
A woman's social significance had been defined solely in relation to having a husband. Mm -hmm. But for these earliest Christians, single women could be afforded this special place of honor. Mm. And it was a beautiful thing. It was part of its appeal. And being true widows didn't mean that they were just viewed by the church as just like some sort of charity case case with nothing to contribute themselves. On the contrary, these elderly women took up real ministry responsibilities. Being enrolled on this list even seemed to involve some kind of vow to continued celibacy. That's hinted at in verse 11. For this reason, Paul discourages younger widows from enrolling, encouraging remarriage in their case. Now this kind of creates another possible point of confusion. Why does Paul encourage remarriage of young widows if we already know that he valued singleness for the sake of the kingdom? And I think the reason is clear in this passage and in other passages. Because Paul is always realistic about the potential for sexual immorality. He's always realistic about that. The life of singleness and celibacy, however valuable... They might be for helping people to focus on the kingdom and on ministry. It's never compulsory in the New Testament. Mm. And it's never taken lightly. Both in this passage and in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul didn't want a vow of singleness to turn into occasions for lust and sin. When their passions draw them away from Christ, it says in verse 11. Or they burn with passion instead of being married, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 9. Paul knew that most people, most Christians are called to marriage, and only some are given the gift of singleness. This gift is what Jesus referred to as eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom, a choice to be a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. I'm afraid that the Protestant church, in our efforts to distinguish ourselves from the sort of corruptions of late medieval monasticism, And there certainly was corruption. But in our efforts to distance ourselves, we've actually distanced ourselves from other legitimate forms of kingdom life. Mm -hmm. The monastic call to celibacy and intentional community goes back to the very early centuries of the Christian church. And we see it, as we said, in embryonic form here in the New Testament. And in throwing out monasticism, Protestants have diminished the historic place for singleness in the wider mission of the church even though it was clearly commended by both Jesus and Paul. So as we begin to draw to a close, I want to consider our life as a young church and our lives as disciples of Jesus. What impact should a passage like 1 Timothy have on the way that we use money and the way that we think about blessing those in need? According to John Stott, who was a hero of mine, a great preacher, died just a few years ago, There are two principles of Christian charity that emerge in this passage. The first principle is to use wise discretion. Stott writes, There was to be no general handouts to all widows, irrespective of circumstances. The church's sense of social responsibility is not to encourage irresponsibility in others. And we see that here in 1 Timothy 5. It's clear. Now, some people won't like this principle especially those who are prone to legalism, right? Sometimes we prefer laws to principles. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says things like, give to those who ask of you. And it sounds so absolute. 
And we don't understand how something like that is supposed to jive with what we see here in 1 Timothy 5, this principle of wise discretion. So we would prefer that it say either we should always give to those who ask or we should never give to those who ask. But don't tell me something vague like use wise discretion as you love your neighbor as yourselves. We don't like that sort of thing. <laughs> right? And so to be sure, life in the kingdom is about having God's heart for people, even to the detriment of of our own preferences and safety. That much is plain, but it doesn't mean that we should treat Christian charity as like a wooden law. It's a matter of wisdom, not legalism. Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says, as a child of the king, I always live in, the, in his presence. By contrast, the way of the law avoids individual responsibility for decision. It pushes the responsibility and possible blame onto God. That's why people who must have a law for all their actions lead such pinched and impoverished lives and develop very little in the way of genuine character. Mm -hmm. Willard goes on to give an example, citing Jesus' command to go the extra mile. He says, if, for example, I'm a heart surgeon on my way to do a transplant, I must not go a second mile with someone. I must say no and leave at the end of the first mile with best wishes and a hasty farewell. I have other things that I must do. And I must make that decision. I can't cite laws and thus evade my responsibility for judging. And just as for individual Christians, so for the church. Figuring out how to apply the radical social ethic of Christianity is always going to be a matter of loving and wise discernment. It's for this reason that we've recently developed a mercy team at Incarnation. So the purpose of this team is to... Help would be the case that when people have genuine need, they're not always falling through the cracks. That there's somebody who's kind of looking out for that. But also to kind of get to know people and get a sense of like what do people really need in this situation. So sometimes people need a place to crash or they need cash. But other times what they really need is mentorship or counseling or somebody to sit down with them and help them work out a budget. The Mercy Team is charged to use the resources of the church in a way that's both compassionate and wise. So that's the first principle, the principle of wise discretion. Second, Christian charity, according to this passage, should bestow a sense of dignity on those who are receiving. This is something we could really learn as a church, not just as a church, but as an American culture. Even though these widows in 1 Timothy were in need of support, the church didn't simply view them as charity cases who had nothing to bring to the table, no responsibility. Instead, these old ladies were mobilized to be meaningful ministers in the kingdom of God. If only the church took the same kind of care and creativity in the way that we mobilize those who retired today. What if instead of viewing retirement as a time for self-indulgence or as a time for social obsolescence, what if we viewed it as an almost monastic call, a time for specialized service in the kingdom? It's a SWAT team, the Navy SEALs of the church, <laughs> bringing the old ladies. Yes. And what if we had something similar available for modern-day celibates, those who are called to live a, live a single life, mm -hmm. including committed Christians who are same-sex attracted? Maybe that kind of community, in that context, the call to the biblical sexual ethic, would seem more plausible. 
We all know that most Christians are called to marriage, but what if instead of assuming that all Christians are called to marriage, there were opportunities to form intentional communities that became surrogate families? I want to encourage you guys to dream. Think outside the box, man. That's what the early church was doing. I would love it if incarnation had sort of like a semi-monastic house for men and a semi-monastic house for women where there was like like a ownership of like a rule of prayer and they were serving the poor. They were the tip of the spear for serving the poor at incarnation because they had time and they were able to, to, to sort of be mobilized and be free for the work of the kingdom in a way that married people just are not. I would love it if we could buy this building and have a community like that living on site. I think it'd be awesome. <laughs> We've often exalted the biological family to the neglect of taking responsibility to form a wider sense of family yeah. in the body of Christ. So to come full circle back to the epistle of Diognetus, I think the epistle, I, I think the um, American church needs to become a bit more strange. Just a bit more radical in our expression of faithfulness, to confuse the world with an otherworldly sense of commitment to love and truth and holiness. The church has done these sorts of things in the past. They've sprung out creatively from places of faithfulness. And we can do it again, brothers and sisters. Dream kingdom dreams. Pray kingdom prayers. Be a part of this vision. Because what the soul is to the body, Christians are in the world. Amen. 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 Amen.